welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, a mortuary science student bringing you your daily dose of death with a twist. Previously, Stories from the Mortuary was on YouTube as mini documentaries, but I wanted to try giving a more immersive experience by really leaning into the storytelling aspect for these cases. But before I do that, I want to discuss why I chose death as the central theme for this podcast. And all of my sources for everything we talk about today will be linked in the show notes. So why are we talking about death? According to anthropologist Anita Hainig, In the United States, death and dying aren't popular topics of conversation. The title of a recent graphic memoir by New Yorker cartoonist Raj Shah says it all. Can't we talk about something more pleasant? Instead of confronting their own mortality, many Americans tend to label such talk as morbid and try to stave it off, along with death itself, as long as they can. But it wasn't always this way in the U.S. Until the end of the 19th century, Americans were far more familiar with many aspects of death, largely because most people died at home and people took care of their own dead. So in order to break through the silence and avoidance that shape contemporary American attitudes towards death, we have to teach people different ways to engage with the end of life. Rather than shield them from the specter of mortality, we need to give them the space and tools to explore their own relationship to it. On the whole, there's a far greater acceptance of and preparation for death in many societies outside the United States. For instance, among Hiomo Buddhists in Nepal, dying is regarded as an intricate art to be learned, a project undertaken with foresight and self-awareness to ensure a smooth passage into the next life, as well as a successful rebirth. Relatives elaborately assist the dying person in dissolving his or her attachments to the world. They might place valued objects, such as money or jewelry on the person's chest to satisfy any lingering yearnings for possessions. Um, As anthropologist Robert de Harley says in his 2016 book, Subject to Death, Life and Loss in a Buddhist World, quote, attachment does not occur when nothing is longed for. Many Hiomo people aim for such an absence of longing when they die. So among a group of people in West Papua, Indonesia, known as the Korowai, Death and dying are frequently subjects of everyday conversation. People, quote, often speak spontaneously of themselves as being in the process of dying. And this quote is from anthropologist Rupert Stash from Society of Others, Kinship and Mourning in West Papuan Place. Aged men, if they're awake before dawn, often sing softly about their upcoming deaths. Korowai think of their inevitable mortality as the main reason for having children, who they see as their replacements or body matches. By contrast, in the United States, the end of life has become so medicalized that death is often viewed as a failure, rather than as an expected stage of life. The surgeon Atul Gawand argues in his best-selling 2014 book, being mortal, medicine, and what matters in the end, that this medicalized view of death frequently results in people dying in institutions, cut off from their loved ones and comforts. He says, I'm in a profession that has succeeded because of its ability to fix. If your problem is fixable, we know just what to do. But if it's not, the fact that we've had no adequate answers to this question is troubling and has caused callousness, inhumanity, and extraordinary suffering. That death has become something many Americans avoid, an enemy to be defeated, is evident elsewhere too. 
Just look at the plethora of contemporary fantasies of immortality. They range from anti-aging creams, uh, to efforts to download a person's brain so they can continue to live virtually, to cryonics. Um, death wasn't always so taboo in the United States, however. I mean, this land was colonized through bloodshed. Almost 300,000 people died in battle during the Revolutionary War. During the Civil War, death was rampant, and it practically took place in people's backyards and completely on American soil. In the middle 1800s, much of the process of funeralization was performed at the home of the deceased, including the embalming on the kitchen table, the visitation and wake, and the funeral itself. So when did it start becoming so morbid to talk about death? Cremation societies had begun in the 1870s in the United States, but the trend toward direct cremation is a phenomenon which began after the 1960s. Simply put, Direct cremation, which is often called simple cremation, is the most basic form of cremation. Your loved one is collected, the cremation takes place without witnesses or a funeral beforehand, and the ashes are returned, usually in a simple cardboard or plastic urn. Certainly, cremation can be used as a method of disposition, it dates back to the ancient Greeks, but our culture seems to equate efficiency of direct disposition with effectiveness of memorialization. Cremation can certainly cost less in most cases than a burial plot, but only recently have direct disposers realized the need for a place of memorialization. Now, most if not all direct disposers have come to realize that people need a ceremony or ritual to help in the mourning process. Many direct disposers are now contracting with other organizations such as hospice and churches to fill the need for ceremonies. As described by Dr. Alan Wolfelt, our substitution of efficiency for effectiveness is one of the greatest disservices we've done to the bereaved in our society. This trend toward little, if any, memorialization is resulting in many people having complicated grief, when a ceremony with family participation could have eliminated that. But direct cremation isn't solely to blame for our discomfort with death. Although having a loved one be directly cremated does allow people to distance themselves from death. Extended life and institutionalized death also play a critical role in our discomfort with it. When people live beyond being able to take care of themselves, they're often put into nursing homes or hospice. The elderly are locked away like dirty secrets because they're reminders of our own mortality. It ultimately reduces our exposure to death and leaves us with an abstract idea of what dying really means. As United States culture distances itself from death, it leaves its people with chaos, uncertainty, and a lot of fear. In ancient Egypt and Greece, preparing for the afterlife was an active part of living. Thus, when the time came, the transition felt seamless, as death was a part of the process rather than just the end of it. So, let's brave the unknown together and take a candid look at death. We'll be back after the break. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore memento underscore mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. 
All right, and we're back. Before I get into the story, I do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault for this episode. This case is graphic in a lot of different ways, but it needs to be told in its entirety. But first, I do want to start off by talking about why this month is so special. May is Asian and Pacific American Heritage Month, a celebration of Asians and Pacific Islanders in the United States. A rather broad term, Asian Pacific encompasses all of the Asian continent and the Pacific Islands of Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. The month of May was chosen to commemorate the immigration of the first Japanese to the United States on May 7, 1843, and to mark the anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad on May 10, 1869. The majority of the workers who laid the tracks were Chinese immigrants. In 1839, Britain invaded China to crush opposition to its interference in the country's economic, social, and political affairs. One of Britain's first acts of the war was to occupy Hong Kong, a sparsely inhabited island off the coast of southeast China. In 1841, China ceded the island to the British with the signing of the Convention of Chinupi, and in 1842, the Treaty of Nanking was signed, formally ending the First Opium War. Britain's new colony flourished as an east-west trading center and as the commercial gateway and distribution center for southern China. In 1898, Britain was granted an additional 99 years of rule over Hong Kong under, under the Second Convention of Peking. In September 1984, after years of negotiations, the British and the Chinese signed a formal agreement approving the 1997 turnover of the island in exchange for a Chinese pledge to preserve Hong Kong's capitalist system. On July 1, 1997, Hong Kong was peaceably handed over to China in a ceremony attended by numerous Chinese, British, and international dignitaries. The chief executive under the new Hong Kong government, Tung Chi Hua, formulated a policy based on the concept of, quote, one country, two systems, thus preserving Hong Kong's role as a principal capitalist center in Asia. Hong Kong in 1999 was as bustling as ever. It had been two years since China regained the city, and it flourished with life. Like New York City, the streets were filled with cars and buses, the sidewalks filled with artists and pedestrians. A new century was just around the corner, and the air brimmed with excitement. Our story begins in May of 1999, when a distressed 14-year-old girl hastily made her way to Yao Ma Te police station in Hong Kong. She raced through the crowded streets, keeping her head faced forward, not daring to peek behind her. She knew if she looked over her shoulder for even a second, she might see the ghost. The haunting started several weeks before she found herself rushing to the police station. Most Chinese people believe that burial brings peace to the deceased. They follow the tradition of inhumation, or burial of their dead. Influenced by Buddhism, many Chinese people believe that the souls of the dead stay and protect their descendants. However, the young girl knew that this spirit was not trying to protect her. Lately, every moment was plagued by the ghost of a bloodied and beaten young woman. The phantom was barely recognizable as human for the physical suffering it had endured. Frayed strands of electrical wire that had once bound the spirit's arms still embedded in the gashes in the specter's wrists. Its face disfigured and warped, 
as though it had endured weeks of cruel and unrelenting beating. Its skin was so pale it was practically translucent. The ghost wailed like a banshee, begging for its torture to finally be over. When the apparition appeared before her during the day, she squeezed her eyes shut. But how does one fend off ghosts in their dreams? As she relayed her recent horrors, the police brushed her off, dismissing her claims as nothing but dreams. Nonsense. Perhaps the young girl was coming down from a drug-fueled frenzy or a psychotic episode. After all, why would a girl being haunted by a ghost come to a police station for help? The desk sergeant sat her down. He had seen his fair share of mental breaks. The day was far from over, and yet it was already so tiresome. He picked the phone up from its cradle, ready to punch in the number for her parents. Rather than giving the officer her parents' number, she explained that the ghost was of a woman she had had a hand in murdering. She now had their full attention. The girl offered to lead the police back to the scene of the crime, and two officers raced with the girl the short distance to the third floor of number 31 Granville Road, Sim Sa Shui. As they ascended the steps of the decrepit and derelict old walk-up tenement, their hearts raced. What was she going to show them? The exterior of buildings often reflect what goes on inside, so the dilapidated tenement couldn't possibly house anything good. The girl ushered the officers inside a particular flat, and they were met with a scene more befitting of the brutality of the city's Japanese occupation half a century prior. The beige paint of the once prestigious property peeled away, leaving large patches of exposed concrete. The floor, littered with the collapsed remnants of furniture too large and valueless to be removed when the property was abandoned. Bamboo scaffolding and lengths of 2 by 4 scattered around the peripheries of the apartment, relics of aborted attempts at renovation. A dirty and soiled, single mattress sat in the corner of the room, flanked by small piles of condom packets and discarded needles. In the kitchen, a small gas stove sat beside a rusted refrigerator. The girl, now pale as a sheet, led the officers to the fridge, slumped her head in silence, and simply pointed at it. The closest officer followed her direction and slowly opened the door. He paused to take in the scene that greeted him, bewildered at why a fridge in such a derelict apartment would be packed with so much crudely butchered meat. It took mere moments for the obvious realization to dawn on him. He slammed the door of the fridge shut and charged into the hallways of the tenement to vomit. The girl informed the remaining officer that packed tightly into the fridge was the butchered body of Fan Man Yi. The officer's eyes were then drawn to the large Hello Kitty mermaid doll to the side. Moments ago, this doll had blended unnoticed in the general clutter of the apartment. As he took a closer look, he noticed a certain redness to the dirt that stained the doll, almost akin to dried blood. He put on plastic gloves to inspect the doll further. The body of the doll seemed normal enough, considering it was Hello Kitty with a mermaid tail. But there was a certain hardness to its head. He couldn't particularly squeeze or compress it. He traced his fingers across the dirty doll, 
as if enticing it to reveal its secrets. He noticed some crude stitching on the rear of its head that didn't match the stitching on the rest of the doll. He unpicked the threads, and Fan Man Yi's skull, stained red and gray from her partially boiled and rotten brain matter, fell to the floor with a wretched thump. This case became known as the Hello Kitty murder, and was regarded throughout Hong Kong as one of the most depraved crimes in memory. Fan Man Yi's life was tragic even before she was decapitated and her head stuffed inside a doll. After being abandoned by her family as a child, she was raised in a girl's home. Hong Kong orphanages in the early 1900s were not exactly temples of kindness and caring. Living conditions were often brutal and unforgiving, and children residing within them barely got the qualifications and care they needed to succeed in their adult life. When a child reaches the age of 16, they are to leave the orphanage because they believe one is supposed to be able to fend for oneself at that age. And due to this, Fan Man Yi found herself doing illegal sex work, taking drugs, and committing petty crimes to survive. She had a son, and sources say it was from her husband, while others say it was from one of her clients. Sex work in Hong Kong sat, and still does sit, in a murky gray area of the law. Not exactly illegal, but not exactly legal. The act of sex work itself was legal, but pimping, keeping a vice establishment, causing or procuring another to be a sex worker, and living on the sex work of others were outlawed. This created the uniquely Hong Kong situation in which pimps branched out into real estate, buying apartments and units in cheaper buildings and converting them into numerous micro-flats. The landlords, quote-unquote, then just so happened to rent them exclusively to sex workers at far above the market rate, where the girls plied their trade perfectly legally. It was this type of establishment that the 21-year-old Man Yi found herself residing and working in. The young woman believed herself safer in such an establishment, and statistically she was, but her landlord and many of her clients were still triads, meaning she was never truly safe. A triad is a Chinese transnational organized crime syndicate based in Greater China and having outposts in various countries with significant overseas Chinese populations. Annually, about 80 tons of heroin are distributed by triad leaders in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia, who then distribute it worldwide to their couriers. In early 1997, Fan Man Yi met Chan Man a 34-year-old socialite. The two met at a nightclub and discovered they had something in common. Fan Man Yi was a sex worker and a drug addict, and Chen Man Lok was a pimp and a drug dealer. Before long, Man Yi was a regular addition to Man Lok's group, in addition to his henchmen. Chang Man Lok was one of her usual clients. He always asked for Fan Man Yi because she was his favorite. After a session with Chan Man Lok, she looked to the floor and saw his handsomely filled wallet protruding from his crumpled trousers. The opportunity briefly overtook her reason, and before she could even fully stop to consider the ramifications of such an act, she glanced over her shoulder to make sure he wasn't looking, ripped the wallet from the pocket, and hid it in the clutter of the room. As he went to put on his trousers, the realization hit her. All other emotions evaporated from her in an instant replaced only with dread, and dark fantasies of what would happen to her if her client felt his now empty pocket. Much to her dismay and relief, 
he did not realize, simply thanking her as usual and going about his way. She breathed a sigh of relief as the door closed behind him and sank onto her bed. That was stupid, but it'll be fine. It'll be ages until he finds it missing, and then he'll just assume he lost it on the way home. They have a cordial relationship, and there's no way he'd suspect her. Unfortunately for Manyi, she was dead wrong in this assumption. Chang Manlok was feeling thirsty after his session with Fan Manyi, so he headed for the nearest 7-Eleven and grabbed himself a zesty and refreshing beverage. Like anyone would, he panicked when he couldn't find his wallet, and he began to retrace his steps. He had his wallet when he paid Manny only half an hour ago, he thought. And as the realization hit him, the panic in his mind was replaced with all-consuming anger. He stormed out of the store with the rage of a man possessed by a demon and headed back to the brothel. He barked at the crowd of men waiting outside. Get the fuck out of my way, that bitch stole my money. He slammed on Manny's door, threatening to take it off its hinges if it wasn't opened immediately. Fen Yi, pale as a ghost and consumed by fear, slowly began to open the door, which was barged through by her client the moment he heard the lock click. He pushed her to the floor, grabbed her by the collar, pulled her head up to his and snarled two words at her. Wallet, now. He demanded that she pay everything back with an interest of $10,000. Fan Man Yi said that she was going to pay back the 10000 but it would take her a bit longer to gather the money. He left her with a warning that he would return soon. Chang Man Lok knew that Fan Man Yi had ample opportunities to escape. Within 24 hours, she could have fled to the United Kingdom, or disappeared deep into the Chinese mainland, and with her would disappear both his compensation and his pride satisfaction. Accordingly, he went to pay her visit the next day, and remind her of the due she owed him. The gangster was enraged, but not surprised, when he entered the brothel and found the enticing purple lights of Manny's workplace switched off, with her nowhere to be seen. He enlisted the help of his two criminal comrades, 27-year-old Lung Xing Cho and 21-year-old Lung Wei Lun, to search for Fan Manyi. They had no idea where she lived, so resorted to night after night meticulously searching Hong Kong's various red light districts, reasoning that if she was still in the city, she'd be in need of money so she couldn't have ended up anywhere else. They searched Wan Chai, a district of Hong Kong Island frequented mostly by European expats, believing she may be using a change of clientele to hide. They found no sign of her. They searched Sham Shui Po a heavily ethnic minority district of Hong Kong whose differing circles may provide her some cover. Again, they found no sign of her. The men were unrelenting in their search, until by pure luck in March 1999, they found her working a street corner. Unified behind their purpose like a hive mind, the three gangsters took no reprieve to consult one another or formulate a plan. They immediately looped around the block and pulled up to Fan Man Yi as though they were prospective clients. Then they dived out of the car and bundled her into the trunk before she could identify the men and flee the scene. They screeched off into the night and drove Man Yi to one of their triad's properties. Number 31 Granville Road, Sims Sha Sui. Shang Men Lok planned that he would make Fan Man Yi pay off her debt by giving service to people. 
He set up a brothel with just Fan Man Yi so she could earn money to pay her debt. The first night that she stayed in the apartment, the three men just decided to beat and rape her. Before long, however, the plan had gotten out of hand. The drug lord and his henchmen soon decided that simply prostituting Fan Man Yi wasn't going to be enough and began torturing her. They tied her up and beat her, and for over a month subjected her to various horrors. As word got out that there was a sex worker that could be roughed up without objection from her pimp, the more sadistic clientele were drawn out from the shadows. They would force Fan Man Yi to smile and tell them how she got excited from her beatings, and that if Fan Man Yi would not do that, they would beat her even harder. After each session, she was forced to thank her abusers for the opportunity to be absolved of her sins. Chang and his men beat her by using different instruments like metal bars, kitchen utensils, and even furniture pieces. The men used all brutal ways of torturing Fan Man Yi for about a month, burning her skin with candle wax and at times directly. When they got tired of burning her skin with candle wax, they melted plastic on her body. If they got bored of the melted plastic, they would set short lengths of wood on fire and hold them to her skin. Because of these inhumane acts on her, Fan Man Yi was no longer in a position to handle the clients, and they too refused to pay. Her skin blistered and festered with infection. Merely skin and bones, even the most depraved individuals Hong Kong had to offer didn't want to be serviced by a corpse. As Shan Manlock's plan of making money through her was failing, he decided to torture her even more. They burned her feet so she couldn't stand, walk, or do anything at all. They would wound her, and the men would take food, spices, dirt, and urine, and stuff it into her wound. The men also forced her to consume urine and feces, and they would even starve her. At a point, Fan Man Yi could not even move, and the boy said that she was not fun anymore because she didn't react much to the beatings. One of the men decided to tie Fan Man Yi and leave her suspended in the air so she'd be easier to beat. They tied up her wrists with electrical cords and tied the other end to the ceiling fan, leaving her there for hours, sometimes even overnight. Though the torture of Fan Man Yi was horrifying enough, Perhaps more horrifying is the tale of the 14-year-old girl who reported her murder to the police. Not only was she responsible for turning the torturers in, but she was one herself. Known only as Ah Fong, likely a pseudonym given to her by the Hong Kong courts, the 14-year-old girl was a girlfriend of Shang Menlock, though girlfriend was probably a loose term, especially since she was a child. In all likelihood, the girl was another one of his sex workers. At one point, when Ah Fung was visiting the torturous trio Manlock's apartment, she witnessed Manlock kick Man Yi 50 times in the head. She then joined in, hitting Man Yi in the head. Though the details of the extent of the torture inflicted by Ah Fung were not released as part of her plea deal, they were no doubt extensive. When asked about them, she replied, I had a feeling it was for fun. Then, on the 15th of April, the three men and his girlfriend, the 13-year-old girl, decided to go out. They would usually lock Fan Man Yi in the bathroom to make it harder for her to escape. They stayed out for hours, and when they came back, that was when Chang Man Lok's 13-year-old girlfriend went to use the bathroom and found Fan Man Yi dead in the bathtub. 
Shan Manlock and his henchmen argued that she had died from an overdose of methamphetamine that she had administered herself, though most experts speculate it was her injuries that eventually killed her. Her badly beaten body seemed to have entered the early stages of decomposition before she even died. They only speculate because there's no way to know for sure. Her body was oozing, and they didn't want to keep a dead body in the apartment. Blood, pus from her wounds, and other purge were pooling in the bottom of the bath she lay in, and the smell of putrefying human flesh already filled the air of the apartment. They also didn't want her body to be recognized when found, so they decided to dismember her with a saw. To remove the flesh from the bones, they cooked the individual pieces of her body in a pot, boiling it until they were easy to remove. This was to stop her from decomposing and emitting the smell of rotting flesh. Using boiling water on the same stove on which they were cooking dinner, the killers boiled the pieces of her body and disposed of them with the household's garbage. Her head, however, they saved. After boiling it on the stove, and allegedly using the same kitchen utensils to stir their meals as they did to move her head around, they sewed her boiled skull into an oversized Hello Kitty mermaid doll. Additionally, they kept one of Fan Manny's teeth and several internal organs which they stored in a plastic bag. If boiling someone's flesh to strip it off the bone sounds medieval, it's because it is. The Middle Ages were quite literally plagued with death, the Crusades and the bubonic plague being large contenders for highest mortality rate. Although much importance was attached to being buried in one's native soil, Lack of embalming and refrigeration, together with slow transportation, made it virtually impossible to return home the bodies of those who died in foreign countries. Faced with a similar problem, the Macedonians did not embalm the body of Alexander the Great to return it to his native Macedonia, but preserved it in honey for transit. The Spartan used the same material to conserve the corpse of King Agespolis during its conveyance to Sparta for burial. The Middle Ages developed another practice to facilitate transportation. The poor and unimportant who met death at a distance from their homes presumably were disposed of where they fell or died. The noble, the rich, and the important were sometimes brought back in part, their bodies being cut up and boiled to extract the bones. These were placed in a chest and returned home, while the juices and soft portions were buried not without ceremony near the place of death. This practice is called independent bone burial. The Crusaders considered human remains sacred, and the bodies of many knights who lost their lives in the East were boiled so that the bones could be packed in a chest for Christian burial at home. This practice was outlawed by Pope Boniface III, who pronounced it, quote, an abuse of abominable savagery, practiced by some of the faithful in a horrible and inconsiderate manner. And horrible indeed was the conclusion that Van Menny's fate met. In exchange for protection, which she also likely received in part due to the fact that she was so young, Afong testified against Chan Menlock and his two henchmen. In an attempt to rid herself of the haunting she claimed to be experiencing, she detailed the torture that the three men put Fan Menny through. Though the story was so disturbing, many felt it could not possibly be true. The evidence uncovered by police was damning and disturbing. The apartment in which Man Yi had been tortured was full of Hello Kitty memorabilia, from sheets and curtains to towels and silverware. Furthermore, the body part trophies taken from Man Yi were found inside, with evidence that all three men had interacted with them. 
Unfortunately, due to the state of Fan Manyi's remaining body parts, the police and medical examiners were unable to determine a cause of death. There is no doubt that she had experienced indescribable torture, and that the three men had inflicted much of the damage to her body, but there is no way to tell whether a drug overdose or the torture was to blame. As a result, the three were convicted not of murder, but manslaughter, as the jury believed that though they had caused her death, death was not the intent. The charge left Hong Kong's public reeling from the Hello Kitty murder, but the trio was sentenced to life in prison, with the possibility of parole in 20 years. We should remember Fan Man Yi's name, her image, and her story. Every city on earth has a plentitude of women just like Fan Man Yi, who were given a bad hand by fate, who had to scavenge for scraps on the edge of polite society's splendor, and plenty of animals such as her killers who would seek to exploit them. Fan Man Yi wasn't just someone's daughter, sister, or mother. She was someone. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next story from the Mortuary.